I'm Magnolia McKay, and you're listening to The Post-Purity Project, a podcast about life, love, and sex after purity culture. In this episode, we talk to my friend Kathleen, a divorcee in her mid-30s who lives in San Francisco. She and I met through a mutual friend in her faith community years ago when we were both still married. In this interview, Kathleen tells me about her Christian upbringing in the suburbs of Portland, Oregon, about getting married at age 22 to her first boyfriend, and how her expectations of marriage were shaped by the ultra-conservative church they attended as newlyweds. Then we hear how years of struggling to live up to those expectations finally led her to get a divorce. If you've listened to the previous two episodes of the podcast, this storyline will sound very familiar. And after this episode, we'll move on to slightly different territory. But there's a reason why we're starting the podcast here, with a trilogy of divorcees. As you'll hear in Kathleen's story, purity culture encourages young people, and women especially, to remain committed to marriage, whether the relationship is a healthy one or not. It's not explicitly said, but it's also not encouraged to examine whether your relationship is healthy or not. Kathleen and I knew each other when we were both in unhealthy relationships. We recorded a conversation then about some of the marital struggles we were having because of the expectations of purity culture. I wanted to use that tape as my first episode of the Post-Purity Project, way back in 2012 before it even had a name, but I couldn't do it then. When I listen back now, the way we talked is almost funny. She and I were careful to watch our language, conscious that our families would possibly listen, and I couldn't say the word porn. I called it guy stuff. We both alluded to a lot of pain, but lacked the courage or perspective to actually talk about it. In March 2015, a week after separating from my husband, I bumped into Kathleen on a bus. How are you? I asked her. I'm getting a divorce, she said. Me too, I said, as I hugged her. So, you're hearing these stories now, years later, because divorce has given us the perspective and strength to say the things we couldn't before. Though she and I have shared a lot on our path, there are some distinct differences. For one, she has a daughter with her ex. And another important difference, her story requires a trigger warning. This episode includes a description of marital rape. If you're a sensitive listener, you may want to skip this one and rejoin us for episode four. Now let's jump into the interview. Kathleen and her younger sister were raised by their single mother outside of Portland, Oregon. She wasn't told anything about sex at home, and her sex ed at school was mainly focused on anatomy. So where and when did you receive your majority of information about sex or sexual relationships? That was in church. It started in seventh grade, and we basically were full-on doing true love weights type stuff. So true love weights um, is basically the idea that if he really loves you, he'll wait for you to have sex, true love waits, and that you are supposed to wait to have sex until you're married. And I mean, this applied to both boys and girls, but I think it was primarily targeted at girls and toward girls. And it basically is an extension of ancient patriarchal ideas of virginity as a commodity. It put a lot of value on a, on a woman being a virgin. Um, in some cases, there was value on a man being a virgin, but not. it was definitely not presented the same way. I mean, there was a pledge you had to sign 
Um, and then you wore a ring that basically like, I don't know, the way I thought about it was I'm now like married to Jesus. It was almost like a nun. Like you're basically taking a vow of chastity um, until you meet this magical, wonderful person that God has saved for you. You know, this one person because there's, there's only one. Right. You know, was, was what was the, what was implied. Um, so it was just a lot about how sinful it was, but, but then always couched with the, but within the confines of a good Christian marriage, sex is great. So, um, I actually found when I was cleaning out a year or two ago, um, this paper that, uh, you wrote these um, abbreviations at the top of the page for different sexual acts, all the way from holding hands to, I want to say it was intercourse. And like along the way, there was like heavy petting, little French kiss, big French kiss. Um, and, and you were supposed to draw the line where you would stop because, you know, you were, you were not supposed to go very far. This is very, this is really funny because I'm just thinking about like, all right, so you're telling, I mean, kids who've I probably never done any of this, and you're asking them to imagine this stuff. So you're actually, like, putting ideas in kids' heads. Yes. I actually have huge, like, huge issues with the way all of that, I, I have thought that exact same thing. Yeah. Putting, putting the ideas in their heads and then saying, get those ideas out of your head. Right. Don't do this. <laughs> right. And... And that was, I mean, that was really how I learned most of it. And I mean, we did the whole like pray for your husband to be thing. He's out there, you know, waiting for you and God is going to bring him to you. Um, and just a lot of this kind of thing I found, I've done, I've been doing a lot of cleaning out lately. Mm -hmm. um, and so I found some things I had written at various points in my life and including um, letters I had written to my future husband. And it's just like, so ridiculous. Oh, what um do you do you have any of those to reference or can you off the top of your head remember anything you said? I don't really remember. Um I think it was mostly just like oh, I pray that, you know, the Lord is working in you. You know, very Christiany kind of like referencing a relationship with Jesus kinds of things. Um and I mean, it seems so ridiculous now. Where did True Love Waits recommend that you draw the line? You know, I wonder, I'm I'm hoping that I'm not conflating things in my head, and I very well might be, um, because it was around the same time that, oh, uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye came out, which was a book uh, written by... We couldn't remember the author's name in the moment, but it's Joshua Harris. The book I Kissed Dating Goodbye was published in 1997 and became an instant bestseller among Christian singles. There's a link on the Post-Purity Project website under the Resources tab for a documentary film in production now featuring Harris called I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Now, back to Kathleen's description of his book. I mean, his whole thing was like, you don't even, you don't even kiss people till you're married. And, and that, to me, seemed whacked. Even then. Even then. And I was, I was a good kid. Like I, I was, I had a friend of my mom's um, from church who uh, called me the perfect teenager. <laughs> like I was nice and I was helpful and I was involved in youth group and I was like, did all the things at school and was 
honor roll and like, but would stay home with my mom on Friday nights, my single mom, you know, and we would watch like 2020 together. And like, I, like I had that reputation. And so if I even was thinking then this is insane, you know, I think you weren't the sneaking out your bedroom window type. No, I wasn't. Um, and I never did that. Although I did sneak into my ex-husband's bedroom window, um, when we were in high school. Uh, yeah, well, you know, that was, that was an adventure. I had to climb up a lilac tree. It was a little terrifying. Um, anyway. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if it matters specifically whether it's, um, whether it's true love waits or whether right. it's I kiss dating goodbye. Cause really they all fall under this sure. umbrella of purity culture. Right. I think that's maybe the confusing thing is thinking back. I don't think there was any, any clear direction given as to where the line would be. There was just a lot of um, fear mongering and a lot of, oh, well, it's slippery slope. And, you know, certainly I knew that like, well, if I had known what a blowjob was, I would have known that was over the line, which I did not know until I was a senior in high school. Also, there was this implication that it wasn't just about physical acts. It was this implication that you're basically having a three-way with God. That's really funny. <laughs> I mean, have you never heard that idea? I've read that somewhere. I'm, I'm stealing that. I'm appropriating that. But no, it, I haven't heard this well, one. Well, you've seen the you've seen the diagrams, right? Where there's the the man and the woman are like the bottom sides of the the triangle, and God is like the top of the triangle or the bottom corner. Yeah, of the like triangle that's what a, a healthy Christian relationship is supposed to look right. like. Right, and that's definitely what we were we were told, mm-hmm. um, and. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what what it is. I mean, you're essentially in a like this relationship where like God is supposed to be your primary partner and then your husband is supposed to be second and then your kids if you're the wife. Yeah. Um and I, I yeah, it was like is very hierarchical and I mean now I've seen the like um theological kind of unpackings of that. There's the umbrella of protection theory, which is that um, because God is the big umbrella and then priests or pastors and then is a slightly smaller umbrella under it. And then under that is men who lead their homes. And then under that is women who have an even smaller umbrella. Um, and then under women are children. Yeah. So that, I mean, that kind of fleshes out a little bit of the, the bigger culture that um, that some of these ideas of of sex fall into, where it's more about like gender roles, right. within the church, right. And so, sex itself. I mean, I do remember my youth leader, my small group leader in youth group. She was she was great. Um, I really liked her. We were very close, and she was a young married woman then, and had a couple of kids, and. Um, I remember one of our, our youth group retreats was all geared toward sex. And um, Perfect. Remember, Let's uh-huh. get all of the youth together. Right. And talk about sex. Like, it was so weird. <laughs> and But I remember one night we were back at our cabin and, and we were chatting and she was like, you guys, sex is really fun. It's just really fun. And I think that actually was really important for me to hear. I mean, and she was definitely saying it with the sort of, I imagine, with the sort of asterisk and the like small print disclaimer within the confines of Christian marriage. Like, but mm-hmm. but hearing her say that I think was really important for me to hear. And I've thought of that a number of times over the years. 
Um, Cause she's right. Mm-hmm. And I think hearing that from someone I respected was really important. Yeah. How old were you at that point? I must've been a junior in high school. Okay. Maybe a senior. And at that point, had you, um, had you had any boyfriends? No. And so that was the thing is like, I had spent my entire high school career hearing all of this stuff about purity culture. And it was so easy to believe that I was willing to follow along with it because I had nowhere to apply it. I always, I was that, that girl who had the like super intense unrequited crushes on people. <laughs> Me and too. I'm really sorry to those of you who know who you are. I am, I really hate look like that is the time that I look back on in my life and just cringe because I, oh. <laughs> poor, poor 16 year old me. Um, and poor them. Uh, but yeah, I never had that opportunity. And so it was all just sort of this oblique thing. But meanwhile, I was saturated with, you know, all of the popular culture of, or, you know, romantic movies and like, you've got mail came out around that time and like all, you know, Titanic, like, and I wanted to get swept up in all of those sorts of ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I didn't know how to picture anything other than like the kiss on the romantic balcony overlooking the ocean where the, while the sun set, like that was the extent. You had kind of the story. You had gotten a story that was kind of a, a hybrid of mm-hmm. like pop culture, rom-com trappings. Right. With a bedrock of Christian sure. values that required you to only access those things after marriage. Right. Were you experiencing any sexual feelings that you were aware of in your body? Yeah, I was. And I think I didn't know what to do with them. I mean, by that point, I think I was masturbating. Yeah, I was. And, but it was a very shameful thing. My sister knew and would tease me about it sometimes. Pretty sure my sister, I mean, duh, I know my sister was having sex before I was. My sister got pregnant at 16 and like I still hadn't had sex. So is she older or younger? She's younger. That was, it was, it was very conflicting. And and so what I did feel felt guilty. I felt really ashamed of it. Did you have to do any mental gymnastics to justify masturbation or was it purely like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm going to do it. Oh, I feel guilty. The, uh, the second one. Okay. Yeah. It was exactly the second one. Yeah. yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it. Oh, I'm going to do it. Oh crap. I did it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was very much a shame cycle for a long time. So you did quite a bit of fantasizing about I mean, well, I mean, you talked a little bit about your rom-com sort yeah. of ideals. I think it was more fantasizing about that kind of situation than it was fantasizing about anything mm-hmm. actually sex- sexual. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't have a frame of reference for it mm-hmm. other than what I had seen in movies, really, yeah. and what I had been told no about. Yeah, what were your expectations about marriage and about sex within marriage? Mm. So I dated my high school boyfriend and married him and we were definitely that Christian couple who did everything except actual penis and vagina intercourse. I would always feel so guilty every time 
we made out and it progressed beyond just like kissing. Um, and I, to the point where I didn't enjoy it because of, of the guilt and that complex. Um, or Did, I would enjoy it for a little while and then I would sort of like remember and like kind of freeze up and not, not enjoy it anymore. So I think I was excited to get married and to be able to have sex. And not feel guilty. And not feel guilty. And I don't think I consciously felt guilty. I think I felt a little weird at first. It's like, you know, when you graduate from from college and suddenly you don't have to spend all of your spare time studying or working. And I remember that that feeling of being like, oh my God, I should be studying. And then just being like, okay, no, no, I don't have to. I'm I'm done now. Like I think it was that same feeling with sex, at least for the first while. And I think there was After also you got married, you mean? Yeah. And I think there was also the sense that there was a lot of, uh, everyone knew that we were virgins and that we were going to go off on our wedding night and have sex. And so that who's, felt weird. Yeah. Who's everybody? Oh, like everyone. Like our parents, our siblings, our friends, everyone at the wedding, or most people at the wedding, I would assume anyway. You know, probably not like our parents' random friends, but like most mm -hmm. people at the wedding. Mm -hmm. And that's... Uh, I mean, for for folks that don't come from right a Christian background or don't have any familiarity with purity culture, um, that is kind of a a thing you're pretty aware of if you are in the Christian community. It's like, oh, weddings are special because the wedding night, and like people make jokes about it, and right. And there was a lot of that. They, um, <clears throat> his groomsmen filled the limo uh, that we left the venue in um, with what I thought were balloons and later learned were inflated condoms. <laughs> <laughs> so there was that. Uh, we were so excited and so giddy and like just happy and our wedding had been really fun and, you know, we were 21 and 22. So we were like going to this big hotel in downtown Portland by ourselves. Like, checking in by ourselves like it almost felt like the whole staying in a fancy hotel alone thing was was just as big of a deal to me as having sex mm -hmm. like it was this I almost felt like we were pretending to be grown-ups a little bit yeah that's often the feeling that's the feeling I had after changing my name yeah like Feel you feel like you're playing house, or you feel right. like you're lying at first. You're right? Like, oh, I'm Mrs. So and So. Like you're right. playing. It's, <laughs> it's weird, and I think that's true of any of these life life changes like this. But I think that that specifically did feel a little bit like playing house. And I remember the next day we got up and we were starving because we hadn't eaten at the wedding, and so we got to the hotel and thought we would order room service. Of course, it was too late. There was no room service. And um, so we ate a box of peanut M&Ms from the mini bar. That was our dinner. Mm -hmm. um, so we got up and we were super, super hungry. And so we went to go find some food. And I just remember walking around Portland um, thinking like, oh, my God, I had sex last night. Like, oh, my God, everyone, how can people not tell? Like, like feeling different in this weird way. Like, I kind of think I probably also had a sense of trying to remind myself, like, oh, yeah, I can do this now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's okay because you're married. Right. You know, I've talked to, to friends and 
other people who grew up in purity culture and um, who had a really hard time getting over the guilt about having sex even after they were married. And that that wasn't as much of a thing for me. Um, I felt more just happy to not have to feel guilty anymore. But, you know, it brought with it a whole other set of, you know, interesting issues. So things about what if he wants to have sex and I don't? Or what if I want to have sex and he doesn't? And issues around that that I think was just exchanging one thing for another. Did purity culture give you any instruction on what if one person wants to have sex and the other doesn't on any given night? I think it wasn't so much purity culture um, as it was the the church that we were in by that time that was basically, I mean, it was essentially purity culture 2.0. And the focus was definitely on married couples. It was sort of this this two-faced message of, well, if you don't want to, he should respect that. But also, you should really think about whether you're being selfish and you need to, you know, man up and serve him in this way. I mean, I guess we could bring in the word wifely duties. Right. I mean, and that's, you know, that's sort of what it was. And there was this sense of, like, feeling like if I didn't, it would give him an excuse to go cheat. And actually, later, after he did cheat on me, um, one of the times the excuse was, well, you were mad at me and weren't having sex with me for like two months, which is just like so ridiculous to me. Like I wasn't having sex with him. I was sleeping in our daughter's room with her because I was seriously considering leaving him. And this was three or four years before I actually did leave him. Yeah. It it was just like, that's really, that's really your excuse. Like I wasn't having sex either. Right. But I didn't, go and sleep with someone else. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely the idea that like men have desires that can't be controlled and women are sort of these vessels by which men sate their desire. And yet if you're, especially the church that we were in, um, was sort of like, you've got to be this pure godly woman who's basically like a porn star in bed and will do anything that he wants. And like, that's what you have to do and be. Mm-hmm. So that kind of um, that kind of gets into my question of what what being a good Christian wife um, looks mm. like according to the the church community you were a part of. Yeah, I mean it was it was the verse in Ephesians was the verse that was pointed to about um, wives submit to your husbands as they submit to the Lord. Um, which, you know, in theory, I guess, I mean, I don't believe any of this anymore, like at all, period. But I think I can see kind of where that should have gone before it became really perverted. Um, the idea that, you know, if a man truly is godly, whatever that means, and what I always took it to mean was kind. Uh, humble, loving, caring, giving, generous, all of these things, compassionate. Uh, And that if he is submitting to the Lord, then those things are being cultivated in him. And so, therefore, that is 
how the relationship with his wife would be as well. But that's not how it ever worked out. Like, I don't know of any relationships where it actually worked that way. But I think that was how I justified it in my mind, um, believing that for so long. And I think there was just so much about very, very rigid gender roles. I want to bring this in to the conversation, too, that, you know, you're living in San Francisco. You got married in Portland, Oregon. These are not mm-hmm. conservative Christian communities. Right. Well, I mean, and this church church that we went to was in Seattle as well. So this is, you know, these are some of the liberal West Coast cities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you're part of a subculture in which these these ideas were still thriving. Yeah, and and they thrived um, almost as a response to the rest of the the culture around us. Um, I think... That was certainly something that the pastor in Seattle would say was that, like, look at this godless city around us and look at us. We're, we're a beacon of light and of, you know, the right way or, like, God's way or whatever. Um, so the expectation in that church was that you would get married um, and you would be virgins and, and you would get married. And um, the man would work. The wife would stay home and start having babies. And I think that that was kind of the norm. Like you're supposed to just, the wife stays home, the husband goes to work, he provides. She raises the children and probably homeschools them. Um, and I mean, you know, the the idea that you're, you're having these children and you're raising them in this specific way to perpetuate the culture was blatantly talked about. I mean, that was like a thing. Mm-hmm. It was, it was the MO. Oh, totally. That you're doing this to make a legacy and, and you know, to to raise up all of these Christian children who would come and take over the the charge um, in 20 years or whatever. And, Army of God, right? Oh, totally, yes. So we got married, and all of these people followed that path, and we didn't. And um, it was really hard for me. Um, we actually, about six months after we got married, we moved to the East Coast for three years where he went back to school. Um and I worked. And it was hard for me to be the one working full-time and carrying health insurance and paying the bills. And we did not have any money. I mean, I was working like 60 hours a week as a newspaper reporter, making like $21,000 a year and paying $300 a month for shitty health insurance that only covered me. You know, we had nothing. And I was miserable and lonely And he was off going to school, you know, and then he would come home and have all of these things he wanted to buy um, for for school, he would say. And I had no choice but to say yes. And, you know, I actually had a conversation um, when we lived in Maine. There was a girl I had known in youth group in Oregon, and she had also moved to Maine and married someone and was busy starting her, you know, having her five kids and whatever. And her quiverful. Exactly. Yep. Just pull that lingo right in. Uh, <laughs> but I had a conversation with her um, about all of this and about how frustrating it was and how hard I was trying to keep us financially, if not stable, at least not like falling over. And how all of the extra money I ever earned or got went to pay bills because he was spending money on all of these things. And how I just wanted, there was something I wanted. It was even, it was something stupid. It was like an appliance. I think it was like some vacuum cleaner or something. But it was like $150. And, and I was complaining to her that, you know, he told me just go out and buy it and that he didn't understand that if I did that, 
we would not have the money to like pay our power bill or like pay our rent or I wouldn't have gas to get to work or whatever. And, and she was like, well, he, he's telling you to go and buy it, do it. He's the head of the house. And I was like, well, but like, so that's going to totally screw us up. She's like, well, he needs to feel those consequences. If he's telling you that he's the head, he needs to learn. And it just felt like, like in hindsight, it's such a passive, aggressive way to be. And I think so much of that culture is that because I think the women in those marriages don't actually feel that they have agency. And so they do all of these passive aggressive things. Yeah. It's not an equal partnership. It's not at all equal. And so I remember that very clearly that moment. And I, I can't remember if I did it or not, but it was hard because I grew up with a single mom. Um, and so I learned how to do a lot of things because I can kind of get in there and figure things out and solve problems. So like I would like program our VCR back in the day. And like there was definitely a big part of me that felt really comforted by all of these rules and by all of these constraints because it was like saying, if you do all this, then you're good. You're good with God. You're good. Your marriage is good. You're, you're good. Um, and having watched my parents' marriage end, um, which had been really hard on me, that felt really safe. Well, we've talked a lot about the gender roles. Um, I guess a two-part question. Sure. I would like to get into more of the specifics mm -hmm. of what your expectations were of sex in mm -hmm. marriage and then how those expectations were either met or disappointed. Sure. Um, I'm not sure that I knew what my expectations were. Um, I think I just thought it would be fun and exciting. Um, and it felt a little illicit, which was kind of fun too. During the time that we were dating, I never felt that intense, overwhelming, oh my God, I have to have sex with you right now or I am going to die. Mm -hmm. I never felt that. And I didn't realize until after we were divorced that, like, that was actually a thing that could happen. I mean, I would read about it in books, and certainly, like, there have been periods in my life when I've read a lot of really terrible romance novels, and that's how it's described. And mm -hmm. I always thought it was hyperbolic. Like, I really didn't, didn't think it was anything more than, like, a literary trope. And then I experienced it, and I was like, oh, no, so that's, that's a thing. And so I think, you know, using that to kind of... <laughs> describe what my expectations were and then how they were met is maybe a decent analogy. Like I think by saying I never had that feeling until after I was divorced. I mean, I think I enjoyed sex and there were times I disliked it. There were times I didn't want to be doing it. There were times that I have now realized were, were rape. I mean, that's, that's what it was. Um, I don't know. And I think it wasn't all bad, but it was never spectacular. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why. I don't know if that's just some fundamental, uh, lack of chemistry between he and I, or if it points to deeper relational issues that we had. I mean, I think it's maybe a little bit of both. Because you brought it up, are you willing to talk a little bit about, about rape? Um, yes, to a point. Yeah. 
maybe just more in terms of like emotionally the process yeah. that you went through just because I do feel like there may be people sure. who will listen who are like, why isn't this feeling like what it's supposed to? Right. I think, yeah. I mean, I think there were a lot of times that we were having a lot of relational difficulties and that, I mean, I know I used sex as a band-aid with him or as a distraction because I knew it would distract him from talking about issues and it got to the point where I could not bring myself to talk to him about any problems because it was just never ended well. Um, and I just needed to like protect myself from the, the fallout, um, of talking. And, but I think there were a couple of times and for me, these things relate specifically to his desire to do things that I had no desire to do. Um, specifically anal. And I would try to take one for the team every couple of years and let him try. And every single time I ended up bawling. Um, and it was just, I look back and I'm just like, oh my God. Like, I now realize that there is a process that you should go through that is not just like, it's not like having regular penis and vagina sex you can't just do it like there are things you have to do to prepare that he didn't know and that I didn't know and so it ended very very badly um the last I think it was the last time um I remember just bawling as he was doing it like tears just streaming down my face and he was like I can stop and I was like I just uh, whatever just hurry, hurry or something like and then he did like he didn't stop and I got up and I went in the bathroom and I sat on the toilet and I just like bawled and like was shaking and I it was so painful and I didn't recognize that as rape for a long time I mean he asked me and I didn't say no but like I was I was crying and he knew that and, like, the fact remains that no matter how many times we had that experience, he would always ask again later. And being the nice, good, Christian, submissive wife I was, I would say no for a time and then eventually give in because um, I didn't feel right saying no. How much agency did you feel like you had? How much right did you feel like you had to express your own uh desires or needs yeah i mean i don't i don't think i didn't feel like i had very much um at all and you know this was always this was also coming from a relationship where if i wanted to have an orgasm it was my responsibility to make that happen and it always felt as though he felt like he had a right to my body, whether I wanted to or not. And I think that he, we had talks about where he would say, I want you to be into it too. And it's, you know, better when, when you are and all of this, but you know, these were often at points in our relationship where like 
for instance, I was like thinking about leaving him or I was suspecting him of cheating on me or like he had just done something where he'd screamed and thrown things and like punched a hole in the wall. And so like I, you know, it was just so hard for me because I didn't really feel like I could say no and stand by my no. Um, when you mentioned before, like using sex as a distraction to avoid emotional fallout. Yeah. Um, is that kind of what you're describing? Like him getting angry or throwing a fit? Yeah. Or? I mean, sometimes, and I think sometimes too, like he w is one of those people who like is, he comes into a room and his mood becomes the room, whether it's good or bad. And so on days or at times when his mood was really bad, sex was a way that I could at least placate him or blunt the badness to try to avoid fallout later. Mm -hmm. So these, I mean, these kind of dynamics are like really, it's really tough stuff. These aren't unique to purity culture or to Christian marriage. I mean, these are things that come up in, in a lot of um, intimate relationships, you know, whether, whether people are, you know, have ideologies that support that or not. Yeah. I think, I think for me, I think that's very true, but I think that purity culture absolutely played a role in why I stayed as long as I did and why I didn't stand up for myself yeah. in a more proactive way or in a more, I don't know, or, or at all. I mean, I just, I remember, um, and I think you and I may have talked about this at some point. There's a Bible verse in the Old Testament, I think, where it says God hates divorce. And my mom used to use that verse all the time and pointing at my parents' divorce as a, a painful thing and, and all the pain was why God hates it. And I think that there's also, you know, there's a lot of New Testament portions where it talks about when a divorce can occur and how it should happen and like things like, you know, only because of unfaithfulness. And, you know, so I sort of, I didn't have proof of that for a long time. And then when I did, I was trying to like look past it and forgive. And I think there's, there's such a mentality of forgiveness in Christian culture um, that a lot of Christians forgive all the wrong things and then are really um, unable to forgive or extend grace for other things that they should. I mean, like I'm supposed to forgive him all of these things and and stick with him and remain faithful and remain submissive and and all of this. And I think, you know, by the time I, I was considering, truly the, considering leaving him the first time, um, I was, the faith community I was in was actually supportive of me doing that. And we're all standing by ready to to help me in any way that I needed it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, their desire still was to see my ex-husband changed and our marriage to, to maintain itself um, in a new way. And, you know, sometimes you just have to accept that, like, that's not possible. The change isn't possible. And sure, like, all things are possible with God, but, like, it's just not going to happen. And there gets to be a point where, like, okay, great. If it's going to happen, fabulous for you. I don't, I am not 
willing to wait around for this anymore. When I first, in like 2012, when I was looking at filing for divorce, um, I was also doing some reading. Um, there's a couple of really great resources um, by this man named Lundy Bancroft, who has written a number of books about um, abusive marital relationships. Um, one is called Why Does He Do That? Um, and the other is called uh, Should I Stay or Should I Go, I think. There's another book with a very similar title, not by Lundy Bancroft, but that's the one I read. And so, um, you know, I read these books on my Kindle app on my phone so that he wouldn't see them. Which is a sign of er, an abusive relationship. Right. Oh, and, and what I was going to say was uh, the Should I Stay or Should I Go book actually has a kind of a rubric that you can follow. And it's actually, I found it very helpful because it was concrete information. Like, is he willing to do X, Y, and Z to change? Is he willing to try all of these things? Is he willing to hear you do all of these things? And so there's this guide you can print out from the internet and give to your partner. And so I did this. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's asking them to acknowledge their role in hurting you and to like to own it and to admit it, which is not something most abusers are able to do. And so he um, made a showing of going to therapy for a couple of years. Um, and our agreements were things like going to therapy, not smoking weed. Um, and, you know, a year or two in, even six months in, honestly, like I think that he was still going to therapy. I have no idea how it was going but I know he was smoking weed again. And so it just, like, I had tried. I had done it all. I had tried to forgive him. I had tried to trust him again and open myself up to him again. And, you know, he didn't prove to be worthy of that, and that's why I left. When did you know it was time for divorce? I had three conversations in the fall of 2014 that really helped me to make the decision that it was time. The first was I have been going to and am a member of an Episcopal church here in the city um, that has been a huge, huge support for me in the last several years. I met with my priest um, and had a conversation and confessed to him how bad things had been in my marriage um, and how, how much I was struggling and he, with tears in his eyes, looked at me and said, Kathleen, God wants us to be whole people, and your marriage is not allowing you to be a whole person. And that really struck me, and especially as someone who had grown up, you know, hearing about the evils of divorce and God's opinion of divorce being that he hates it, that was a pretty powerful statement. So that was conversation number one. Conversation number two was my mom, who was the perpetuator of the God hates divorce thing and who even to this day I think is still upset about her divorce from my dad and not that she thinks that they should be together but I think there's a part of her that still wishes they were or that she were with someone either way my mom had come for, for Thanksgiving and it had been a pretty it had been a pretty tough visit my ex-husband was not in a good headspace at the time there was a lot of conflict between he and I and he and my mom and and he and our daughter and it was my mom's last day and we went to Target. My mom was really upset and I could tell and I kept pushing her and asking her why and she didn't want to talk about it, didn't want to talk about it. And then finally she turned to me and she was like, I can't stand how he treats you. And 
we had this conversation where she was basically said, you are young. You have time. You can find someone who really loves you and who really respects you, really cares about you. She said, I'm, you know, I didn't date after your dad and I divorced and that was a conscious decision. And now I feel like it's too late that my ship has sailed, which I totally disagree with, but that's another story for another time. And she was like, this doesn't have to be it for you. I don't want this to be it for you. That was really powerful to hear my mom, uh, who had for so long been so staunchly anti-divorce generally, say those things. Um, And the third conversation was with a good friend of mine uh, who I had met when my daughter started kindergarten. So this was now the middle of first grade. So we'd known each other about a year and a half. And in that time, that around the time we started kindergarten uh, was around the time that we were sort of trying again. Um, and sort of a time that I had thought was like a better time than other periods of time. And I was telling her, um, we'd gone Christmas shopping and then went to get a glass of wine. And I was telling her about this and um, telling her about how like, well, I mean, it, you know, it's been it's been better. And she's like, Kathleen, in the year and a half I've known you, if this is better, she's like, it's not. Like, it's not. Remember the time he did this and this other thing and this other thing. It's not better. And I think those three conversations had me very, very, um, they had me thinking a lot. And so that was like two weeks before Christmas. So Christmas came around and there was a bunch of drama leading up to it where he had spent money that we didn't really have and our rent was late and I had no money to buy a Christmas tree, let alone presents for my kid. And like, I mean, I was working a real job, like it shouldn't have been that way. And um, I was coming into this pretty like stressed out and depressed. And But there are certain Christmas traditions that we've always done. And so I was trying to uphold them. And, and the whole day was just, was just a disaster. Like from the moment we woke up, um, and this was really, this was really the moment I knew. Um, so our daughter was about to turn seven and she woke up at 6.30, which is a pretty normal time that we would get up in our house. Like that's normal wake up time. It wasn't like she was waking up at 4 a.m. and trying to get us to go up Christmas morning. It was like normal time to get up. And so she was like, it's Christmas, it's Christmas, let's get up. And so um, she and I got up and he stayed in bed and I was like, well, okay, that's okay, I guess. Like I'll just, I'll make coffee and like, you know, turn the Christmas tree on and and we'll just, we'll go get him in like 10 minutes. Um, and, you know, I had been out singing um, choir at the late church service the night before and had asked him to do a number of chores um, before I got home um, so that Christmas morning would be, things would be ready. And they weren't and he hadn't done them. And so I was doing those and like, you know, things like cleaning up the wrapping paper I had used to wrap the last presents, like out of the middle of the living room floor, like really simple stuff. So went in after the coffee was made and like, Kate's time to get up. And he like wouldn't get up and went in a couple more times. And our daughter went in and was like, come on, get up. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. Get up, get up, get up, get up. So he didn't get up. So 45 minutes later, I went in and he was lying in bed, scrolling through Instagram on his phone. And I was like, you need to get out of bed. Like now it is Christmas morning. Get up. And he was like, God, you guys are like freaking out. She can wait. Just, just, she can wait. It's like, no, she's six years old and it is Christmas. Get out of bed. And he did and was a total jerk the entire day. 
And that was when I knew. I was just standing in the kitchen, like, making cinnamon rolls, which is one of our Christmas morning traditions, with no help from him, like, having had to wash all of the dishes to make the cinnamon rolls because he didn't do any of them the night before. And I was just, like, miserable and thinking, I cannot do this for another year. Like, I can't do this again. I'm not going to do this again. And so the next day, I called my attorney. And, yeah, like, Christmas is different now. It's hard. Um, You know, I only get half the day with my kid, and that really sucks. But I would rather have that and have a peaceful, beautiful, happy, fun Christmas morning. I would not trade that for anything. What beliefs did you have to challenge or abandon in order to leave your marriage? Um, I think I challenged and abandoned them over time. Um, I think that coming here was a really good thing for me. It was a huge catalyst, got us away from the church in Seattle that had so many destructive um, ideas. Um, the first six months we lived here, we didn't go to church at all. And I think that was kind of the beginning of this, that I felt that sense of guilt on Sunday mornings, not going somewhere and not, not taking my kid to church. But I also felt really free and it felt really good not to feel obligated. That was a huge thing I had to challenge. Um, just the a default idea that to be a good person and to be a good Christian, but to be a good person, I had to go to church every week without fail. And I think another one was once we did get involved with the faith community here, it was um, a house church with a couple of other families. And both of those families had women who worked, who had careers and callings that they loved um, outside the home. And uh, both of the men did a lot of domestic tasks and did them very well. Um, one of them makes the most delicious pasta you will ever eat, homemade pasta. Um, and the other one brews beer, and which is still a manly domestic thing, but like, you know, packs the kids' lunches and, and was a stay-at-home dad for the first year of both his kids' lives. And seeing these people in these marriages and seeing their marriages intimately and knowing that it was not always easy and, you know, witnessing fights between spouses and parents and children, um, but knowing that they were all free to be the people they were supposed to be was really, really pivotal for me. That was so powerful for me to see these balanced partnerships. And I think, you know, I had to shift the mindset that I think I still had a mindset. I mean, I mentioned earlier that I had tons of unrequited crushes in high school. And I think that, um, you know, my ex-husband being really the first person I ever dated, certainly the first person I ever kissed, I still had this idea that that was, that was all I was ever going to get or all I ever deserved. And I think... Well, yeah, you mentioned the one earlier. Right. Like he was the one. He was the one. And, and I think, you know, dumping that and, and believing that I deserved more or better. I mean, believing that I deserved respect and believing that I have a voice and that don't need to not do the things I'm naturally inclined to do because they're not womanly. Um, that all of that is just so ridiculous. Um, that's been, that's been a, those have all been huge ones. And those all happened long before I actually left. Um, I think that they had to happen before I could really truly seriously consider leaving. And then I think one of the other catalysts was when I imagined my life in five years. I didn't want him to be in it. I didn't want to be in this situation and in this relationship. 
In the past, not necessarily today, but in the past, you know, I've talked about how much it's been really fun to be single and explore dating. And do you want to give a a little recap, maybe share some things that 20-year-old Kathleen might find <laughs> very shocking or... Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I did a fair amount of Tinder dating, which 20-year-old Kathleen would be totally shocked by. I mean, the typical, you go out, you meet someone for a couple of drinks, and then you go have sex. And that is it. And you never speak to them again, which I totally didn't understand the first few Tinder dates. I was like, wait, what? We're not going to like keep hanging out? Oh, okay. (laughs) All right, then. Like it was just it was just a sort of paradigm shift. It wasn't like I was like devastated or anything. Um, and once I learned that that's actually how that world works, then that was fine and and fulfilled a very specific purpose in my life. Um, I think twenty year old Kathleen would be really shocked by that, scandalized by the one night stand. <laughs> yes, indeed, she definitely would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that I truly do not feel any guilt about it, I was responsible about it. I, someone always knew where I was and I always would send a screenshot of the person's profile to my best friend. And if I didn't text my best friend by a certain time, she knew it was like a signal that something was wrong. And so someone, I I covered myself that way. And then like, you know, I always practice safe sex in those situations always. And I don't regret it at all. Yeah, that's cool. Um, Something you had said in a conversation we had previously is that you felt like some of the sexual experiences that you've had in the last, uh, well, since since you left your husband, that some of those experiences have been healing. Yeah. I mean, I think they definitely have. Um, I think experiencing that intense attraction with someone um, has been really healing. And I think just feeling desired. I mean, I guess in some ways... I'm thinking about what I said earlier about how sometimes it just felt like my body was my husband's to do what he wanted with. Like, so I was reduced to only a body. And there's a sense in which like an encounter from Tinder is, you could say the same thing, but I think it's different because there's a sense of agency involved in those encounters on Tinder. Um, And there's also conversely in a marriage, there's a sense of intimacy or emotional connection assumed. And so it's sort of the, the the inverse, right? Like the Tinder encounter, there's no assumption of emotional connection at all. And there's the agency. And so that that's the difference. Like it's that combination that I am choosing to do this. Yeah. Well, instead of one person using another person, it's two people using, using each, each other. other. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think just generally it has been healing. And I think it's been healing to know that I have power in that area. And actually told my therapist this last week that a lot of the time I'm kind of amazed that I don't have tons of baggage where sex is concerned. Like I don't, I really don't. And I am amazed, like given all of the things, it's kind of a wonder. And I don't know why it is that way, but I'm really happy yeah, that that's not a, a demon I have to contend with as yeah. a lot of people do. Um, I mean, I certainly have other ones. That one, I don't. Yeah. Well, maybe that's just a delayed um, <laughs> gift of the true love weights, you know. Maybe so. You were you were such a good girl then. 
your reward was just delayed. I guess. Sure. Let's look at it that way. That's I like a, that. That was a joke. That's the little true love <laughs> <Hoyt's> joke. <laughs> um, what would you have told your younger self mm. about sex um, or and or relationships? And what are you teaching your daughter about sex and relationships? I think it can all be summed up in this incident that happened um, earlier this year. So my daughter is nine and a half. Um, going on like, you know, 27. Um, and we spent the last year watching the show Parenthood. So there are some storylines in there about sex and about abortion and about um, first sexual experiences and and all of this. And there's a storyline, the abortion storyline was really, really interesting. So we were watching um, and she's aware enough that she was picking up on, on something going on and she's like, wait, I don't get it. And so I paused what was happening and I said, okay, so here's what's happening. And we had this whole conversation about, about abortion. And, you know, I'll confess that for me personally, abortion is still the issue that I have the hardest time with. Like I am a hundred percent pro-choice. I just don't know. I mean, I don't know what I would do if I were confronted with a situation where I should probably have an abortion. I, I would have a very hard time based on my upbringing. That's actually one of the things that's most deeply ingrained in me and that has been the hardest to, to, to evaluate. Like, do I believe these things because I was told them or because I actually believe them and I still don't really know. So I'm yeah grateful I haven't had to deal with that. But, you know, that was a conversation that I was having with my daughter and and – I think there was some other element of it where basically it came down to me explaining to her um, about birth control and saying, you know, someday when you have a boyfriend and you want to have sex with him, like you tell me and I will take you to the doctor and I will get you birth control. She was like, oh my God, mom, I'm nine. I was like, I know, honey, I know, but I want to tell you this now. And then what I said was, I, this is not something that I was told as a kid. I was told that you should only have sex once you get married. And she, I could see the wheels turning and she's like, you, you mean you only had sex with Baba? I was like, yeah. And Baba is your is, ex's is her dad. dad name. Yeah. Um, and, and I could see this like confused look wash over her face. Like, why? And she asked me that. And I said, well, I was told that you... It's not good to have sex with anyone you're not married to. Um, and she was like, why? Like she couldn't wrap her mind around it. And and it felt like such a victory for me as a parent that that has been the norm for her. And I said, well, you know, I explained some of the reasons and I just said, I, you know, I don't agree with that now. And I, I think you should love the other person and that you should have consent. And we've talked a lot about what consent is. That's another huge focus of mine. Mm -hmm. um, and you should be having a good time and that if you're doing those things and you're doing it responsibly and using birth control, then, then I think that's, that's actually okay. And then she just sort of shut down and didn't want to talk about it anymore. I mean, but having the opportunity to say those things and have her ask questions at an age before it gets too awkward right? so that she can ask these things of me and, and can talk about them um, later, that that door is open. 
um, and that that conversation has been started is so important to me. Um, it's so important to me. And I'm glad that I can say these things to her. And, you know, there have been other instances where we've sex has come up. And um, I think she might have asked me once, why? Why do people have sex, like, other than making babies? I was like, because it's really fun and it feels really good. She was just like, oh. And I could tell she's she's starting to get a little bit embarrassed by this kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. But I'm happy that at least for now we can have these conversations. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. And it's, um, I hear that victory moment. That's like, wow, like none of that like junk got transmitted through you. Right. Well, and I, and, and, you know, and I think about it in the context of my upbringing and certainly like my mom didn't want me watching Friends because it was a show where they all just slept with each other. And didn't want that to become normalized, right? But, like, I don't know. I kind of think I want that to be normalized. Like, yeah. that should be. Um, and, of course, couched in the context of be safe. Make sure you have consent and that they have secured your consent. And other than that, have a good time. I, right. Like, I don't really have any parameters. So, I mean, and maybe all of this will change in five years when she's, like, 14. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're, like, dating someone. But I also would like to think that she will be responsible enough to and know herself well enough to know when she's ready. I asked Kathleen if she had any last thoughts to add at the end of our interview. She was glowing and barely suppressing an ear-to-ear grin as she answered. Um, I've been dating someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been several months now and it was really frightening for me to make that leap. Um, extremely frightening, but I have just been struck over and over again by this relationship and by how it's mutually respectful and how we're both equal and how we both are concerned with making sure the other one is safe and happy, whether it's in bed or not. And I just like, I had no idea that that's how it could be. Like, I mean, all of those years, it's what I hoped for and what I dreamed of and what I wanted and, and what seemed like a pie in the sky, um, rom-com fantasy, but it's not like, I don't know. It just like, it blows me away. We don't get tired of each other. And I mean, several months is still relatively new. So probably at some point in the future we will. But like, I also have the faith that we're both mature enough people and emotionally aware enough that we'll understand what we need to do in those times and like in terms of giving each other space or, you know, whatever and um, being free to pursue our own interests. And there's just this sense of, I want to be with you because I like hanging out with you and I want to be with you. And not because we should or uh, there's some some ethos that's telling us what we should or shouldn't do. Pretty amazing. Pretty special. And, you know, regardless of long-term where this goes, like, I think it's been so valuable and continues to be so valuable for me in terms of, like, changing my paradigm for what a relationship can be. Um, in all the best, all the best ways. Cool. 
thank you for sharing my pleasure story and yeah yeah okay bye it's been over a year since kathleen and i recorded this interview and yes the relationship has changed they've been living together for a year now and she reports that things are still wonderful in a recent email she wrote to me our relationship has changed of course as all relationships do But because it's built on a core of respect, kindness, and love, it's just as good, if not better, than it was a year ago. The contrasts between this relationship and my marriage show up every day, both in big ways like being able to quit my job and go back to school because my boyfriend can financially support us, and in smaller ways like in the fact that we do little things for each other. We listen to each other. We're emotionally vulnerable with each other. The problem with valuing the institution of marriage more than the well-being of the people who are in it is obvious when you hear Kathleen's story. Surviving a bad marriage and the grief and fallout from divorce is so difficult and catastrophic. I found it really comforting to have a friend on the same path as me. From that critical moment when we ran into each other on the bus to several months later when we both happened to be on awkward Tinder dates at Dolores Park. It's been really good to know that I'm not alone. That's why I created this podcast. If you'd like to share your story, email me at postpurityproject at gmail.com. The Postpurity Project is created and produced by me, Magnolia McKay. Sound engineering by Eric Jonasson. Website and ENFP wrangling by Jana Busman. All music is from the 2009 album Triumph by Casey Bird. I asked you why even though I was sure I knew You didn't answer Would you reach for the button that we can see Can't lie
Yeah.